Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 78. Today's episode is all about a hopeful approach to saving relationships. We don't know what we don't know. We enter relationships with the best of intentions, and then we accidentally hurt one another, confused about why the other person's so hurt by what we perceive to be innocent, benign behaviors. And when we make the invisible visible and we accept responsibility for, again, this idea of the math result of what I do can be experienced very horribly by someone else. And I'm going to protect them from it because I love them. It just changes your universe within your relationship. And the beautiful thing is it extends to our children and our best friends and our families of origin and our working relationships. Once we get skilled at these habits, it just improves our relationships across the board. And I don't believe anything correlates more closely with quality of life than how good our relationships are. If you're new to Mind Love, don't forget to subscribe because first of all, the button is super cute and you know you want to touch it. But most of all, you are going to want to be notified about new episodes. Giving your mind a little love is a habit that can help you think better, do better, and feel better. So hit subscribe, you know, just to see how it feels. Relationships are hard. You go from flying solo to partnership, and you're suddenly just supposed to understand how to share your life with someone? I think we romanticize the idea of never being alone, until it happens, and suddenly alone time sounds pretty nice. There are a ton of reasons why romantic relationships are hard. They're more intimate than other relationships, so it's really the first time for a lot of people that you're expected to make decisions as a unit, or really put someone else before yourself. And if you do manage to think of your partner in all of your decisions and they don't return that sentiment, you're not just disappointed, you're hurt. If he doesn't think of me in this situation, why was I not on his mind? Does he even care? Jessica's husband definitely would have thought of her. He's so thoughtful and I know because I see all of her posts on Instagram about it. There's expectations and comparison and conflict. And if you're an empath like me, probably a little emotional fatigue as well. I am very grateful for my marriage. I do think that we're meant for each other. So many things about our lives just fit. And it's not just our personality, but our goals are in the right direction. Our skills are complementary. Our hobbies are similar. We love to explore. And I could go on, but I won't because my husband just literally opened the door and did a little happy dance because apparently somebody's been eavesdropping. (laughs) I've gotten a lot of comments from friends about how our marriage is almost enviable. But what people don't see is the work that we put into it. We are both committed to constantly evolving ourselves and our relationship. It requires a whole lot of self-awareness, but above that, a willingness to always look at our individual sides of an argument rather than just blaming the other person. The biggest problem I see with blaming the other person is that it almost always leaves you powerless, which is ironic because I think a lot of times blame is a way to exert power over the other person. But think about it. If it's always their fault, there's really nothing you can do to make it better. It's always on them. So you're just left waiting and hoping that they will make a change. And if they don't, then what do you do? Deep down, I believe that I have a part in every conflict, and I'm only responsible for my side of it. My human may not always understand that, but my true self, the one I came here to remember and realize, she knows her power. Whether it's a perception that I'm holding over another person, my own lack of boundaries, my decision to stay or leave. I do want to add a disclaimer that some people have more critical issues than I do right now, hardships that I will never understand. So I am not speaking for everybody, but I am speaking for myself. And I've had some pretty awful relationships too, including a relationship with a sociopath who landed me in jail for his crimes. I look back on that relationship though, and I still see what I could have done better even if it was just to spot the red flags earlier or enforce my boundaries or have enough self-worth to know I deserve better and to do something about it. My personal beliefs are that I came here for that experience. As hard as it was, I learned from that. It changed me and I have never been in that situation again. 
And since then, my radar for gaslighting or manipulation has been superhuman. That terrible relationship also created such a contrasting experience that it makes me much more grateful for what I have now. I trust wholeheartedly that my marriage will last a lifetime because I have spent so much time developing personal tools and relationship tools. And so ask yourself, if you're married or in a partnership or a long-term relationship, do you really trust your marriage will last? At this time, 50% of all marriages fail and 67% of second marriages fail which is kind of scary because it shows if your marriage fails once, there's not a whole lot of evidence that you automatically learn to do better. Your second marriage has a greater chance of failing as well. I don't really like to call it failing because I think that every end is a chance for a new beginning, but the catch is you have to learn from it. Otherwise, maybe that's what makes it a failure because not only did it end, but you're not taking away anything from it to do better next time. But if it's a learning experience, then it's just a little detour on the greater path of your life. So if you're having the same fight over and over again, or you're always arguing about who's right, or you don't feel emotionally connected, or you just want to make sure that you're prepared for when conflict does arise, this episode is for you. Because today we're going to learn the tools to make your relationship last. And our guest is Matthew Frey. He's the author of This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. And three key things we will learn are why couples always seem to have the same fights, how to identify and change our response patterns, and key relationship skills to move closer to each other every single day. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Matthew Frey to the show. Thank you. It's uh, pretty awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to write a book about marriages ending? In 2013, my marriage ended and it was, it was bad. Like, I mean, I had a really, really hard time with it. It's funny because I, I perceive my work to be like about other people today. But at the beginning, it was just about me. It was this really selfish exercise of this feels so bad. I didn't know this could I didn't know like the human body could feel these things. This can't happen again. I need to, I was 33 at the time, 33, 34. I'm like, I need to protect myself from this happening again. And so, so began the mission of really trying to solve like the mystery of, at the time that was there for me, I'm sure, I'm sure my, my ex-wife was fully aware of all the things. I don't think it was a mystery for her. But for me, it was a total mystery as to what my contributions were to the end of my relationship. And I felt as if learning what those were, learning how to name them and identify them and notice them was the key to sort of like the insurance policy I'd need to protect my future self from having this happen again. And then I accidentally became a self-help writer along the way. (laughs) Yeah, I have been married for almost... Is it over seven years now? I don't even know. We've been together like nine years. It blows my mind because... I've never been in a relationship this long. (laughs) Like, why? How? I am very lucky to have a very supportive spouse. I mean, we'll have issues every now and then, but we both are self-aware enough to 
try to see things from each other's perspective at least. And that, and that's so helpful because there's times that I'm like, you're just wrong. Like what? <laughs> I don't understand how you can't see how wrong you are. But, uh, then if I take a step back and actually let the emotions dissipate, I can see things, even if I don't necessarily agree, it's more like there's always two sides. So I could be right for example, but it doesn't mean I'm not making him feel a certain way or that he's not right as well, just with a different version of the story. Like sometimes we'll be arguing and I realize after the fact that we're arguing about two different things. So I'm curious though, for most marriages, the ones that actually end, what are the common themes in those divorce or separation stories? I think you're aware that my overarching premise is this idea that good, well-intentioned people get married and they they fundamentally want to be married for life and have every intention of behaving in a manner designed to do that. And they just, I I believe they don't know that some of the things they do on autopilot and their blind spots on their default setting will contribute to trust erosion in the relationship. And this, this slow decay of trust in the relationship over five, seven, 10, 15, 20 years can result in some pretty awful things like down the road, but they're so slow developing that like nothing sets off like the fire alarm because every isolated incident is a paper cut. It seems so benign or inconsequential, but when you add it all up, it equals trust erosion. And I'm not afraid to say that I believe that in male-female relationships specifically, guys tend to show up with the blind spots a little bit more than their female partners. This is certainly not universal and I don't like to get like overly gendery about it, but I just, I believe that guys like me bring a lot of accidentalness to the table that causes harm and it, it disguises itself as not a big deal. The major issue I think that people need to be concerned about, need to think about is this idea of trust. You were talking about this idea of your husband's wrong and I'm right. And one of the things that I'm, I've really come to believe because I used to argue passionately for something I believed to be right, true, correct. Um, and it, right, it was like this idea of like fighting for justice. It's like, you know, you're wrong. Like, like the truth should win, like correctness should win. And I, I find really close intimate relationships to be the one area where the metric of correctness can frankly cause more harm than good. And it's something we may get into if we start talking about like, I don't know, themes and, and some of the stuff that I do in coaching work. But I, I think there's a real danger in focusing on being correct. And, and you already talked about it. Instead of you soften that and notice your husband sometimes is literally experiencing something, feeling something that you begin to value more than like winning that contest with him. Which it actually reminds me of a past relationship I had, only the roles were reversed, funnily enough. I, and I can see it so clearly. I was on copious amounts of Adderall at the time, so I'm pretty sure my empathy was just like non-existent. And I was just like fast-paced and, and like, yeah, like I said, just Adderall took away my empathy. And my boyfriend at the time was a Pisces and he was extra feely and I wasn't used to that especially at this age and there would be things that would happen and and I'd be (laughs) he'd say like yeah but don't you understand how that made me feel and I was like but your feelings don't make sense it was one of the one of the last fights we had and I can remember the exact instance he like thought I was flirting with his friend and I was like what I, I had no clue where this was coming from and so even when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, you were wrong. And so then it ended up creating this interesting situation where I was right because I wasn't flirting, but he felt a certain way and like wanted his feelings to be validated. But then I felt like validating his feelings would be like admitting I was flirting with his friend, which I wasn't, the 20s relationships. But I think about that a lot now because once I got off the drugs that were taking away my soul... And truly, no offense to anyone on Adderall, this was just my experience with it. But once I was able to be a person not affected by a substance showing up to a relationship, now, every time I'm feeling something, I remember that old version of me. And so on one hand, it gives me a little more empathy for when my husband can't necessarily see my side. But I can just see how that cycle can go back and forth because I think I fought with my ex over that one thing for like six days. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes that fight will last years in a relationship. It'll go unresolved and it'll just keep getting brought up in future fights. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes that fight will last years in a relationship. It'll go unresolved and it'll just keep getting brought up in future fights. You know, this is just like the time you did or you said whatever. And I certainly had a number of those in my marriage. I think the example you gave and what's interesting is you sort of raised your hand as the quote unquote invalidator. And usually I'm working with men and usually the men in male female relationships are the invalidators, but it's certainly not always true. And I always offer that caveat that this is not, nothing is like universally true or specific to any relationship model or any particular gender. Um, But I just, you identified it. And validation to me is the number one culprit in the slow erosion of trust in relationships. And it's what I was referring to earlier. I didn't allow my wife to think or feel something different than me without communicating the incorrectness I thought she was bringing to the table. And I just think that this hyper-focusing on being right about something prevents the connecting intimacy, trust-building moment of validating someone else and understanding why X, Y, and Z resulted in them feeling bad. Because if you understand why X, Y, and Z results in your partner feel bad, then you're in a position moving forward 
to meet those needs, like in real time as life's happening. But if you keep denying that X, Y, and Z should should cause you know this person to feel this way, you're going to continue to go through life blind to how those moments are adversely impacting them. It doesn't mean you're incorrect, and it doesn't mean you don't love them. It does mean they'll trust you less, less. Excuse me, with their safety, with their with their trust, with do I really want to voluntarily be part of this for the rest of my life? If you're somebody that's a perpetual validator, I will make the case that they won't want to. I want to talk about trust for a moment because I think a lot of people automatically think of infidelity when it comes to trust, but trust goes deeper than that. Yes. Infidelity and lying are the two ways that I think my brain sort of does it too. And I do not mean trust in an honesty way necessarily. And I don't mean trust certainly in like a fidelity way in the context of like you know, sexual fidelity, loyalty. I think of it as like reliability, consistency. I trust that this will be here tomorrow. I trust that this relationship will get me through the hard times when my kids move out, when my parents die, when life is hard. I mean, that's a, a huge part of why we partner up is to not just like adventure through life together, but to get through you know, the difficult things as well. And I think so many of us inadvertently do things. I don't want to say we don't inadvertently do things. We do things sometimes quite intentionally. The inadvertent part of it is we, we fail to calculate for how the other human actually experiences it. And if the way they actually experience it erodes or reduces the amount of trust they have in us, then you know that becomes an issue over time. Do we have time to like get into like this invalidation thing? Because I think so many people say, Matt, are you advocating, at least this is what the guys say to me when I'm working with them, Matt, are you advocating like agreeing with my spouse or my partner even when I don't agree with them? I'm like, no, I'm certainly not advocating agreeing with somebody that you don't agree with. I'm advocating not conflating this idea of validating someone's emotional experience with having to agree with them. And the thought exercise that I offer for this is to imagine, uh, this is the thought exercise I use to overcome my invalidation habit. This is like the bedrock habit in my coaching work that I lead with, that I ask people to become really mindful of how they show up when somebody comes to them and says, hey, something's wrong, I feel bad. How we respond in those moments really provide a strong signal about how trustworthy or untrustworthy someone is. And the scenario I imagine, and the scenario I talk about in my coaching work, is imagining a child, and in this case, making it really personal, my son, being afraid of a monster hiding under his bed. He's 13 today, he doesn't do anything like this, but he used to be four. And when he was four, he was a threat to wake up in the middle of the night, spazzing out because he's afraid of a monster under the bed. And me, 10 years ago, runs up to that room to check on him, and then finds out he's spazzing because of a monster under the bed. And my instinctive default setting response is, dude, there isn't a monster under the bed. And maybe I'm even a little annoyed with him for like making a big deal out of something that isn't even real. And I'm like, buddy, there isn't a monster under the bed. So the reason you feel bad and this behavior that you're doing is based on something that isn't even real. And if I'm not being my best self, I'm saying things like, please stop crying, be a big boy, toughen up, everything's fine, go to sleep. I don't have time for like invisible monsters right now. And I leave. And I just think there's really important ideas there in the context of our adult relationships. One, I'm correct. If there's like a magical judge floating in the room, she or he is like, dad wins. Like there's no monster under the bed. Facts are on my side. Two, I love the kid tremendously. He's my favorite human on earth. Couldn't love somebody more than him. Three, I would never, ever do a thing or say a thing designed to inflict harm or pain on him. I would never do that. Despite those three things, what's the math result of this scenario with this kid afraid of the monster under the bed? It's he's alone in the dark, still afraid, regardless of whether there's actually a monster there or not. And he just learned something about dad when dad doesn't think the thing that's adversely affecting me is important or worth his time. He abandons me literally or metaphorically to cry alone in the dark after communicating how dumb or weak or crazy I am. I now don't trust my dad as much as I used to. When life's hard, dad's the last person I'm going to be inviting to come be part of, you know, a, a problem with bullying at school or being offered drugs or some sort of like romantic complication he or she might have in the, in the teenage years or in their young adulthood. And all because I hyper-focused on 
whether or not there was a monster under the bed, whether or not he was correct. I tried to win the battle of ideas with him, and the math result was I eroded trust in my relationship, despite being correct and despite loving him very much. I think there's an alternative way to show up for people in relationships. And the best way I know how to think about it is this identical scenario. I run up there. He's crying. I run up there. He tells me he's a monster under the bed and he's afraid of it. I know that there isn't one. But I sit down on the bed. Instead of trying to sell him on the idea there isn't a monster there, maybe I even say it, but I don't think there's a monster there. But I'm so sorry that you're afraid right now. Like the thing I want to connect with him on is that he's feeling like really awful. And I'm like, buddy, I've been afraid before. And it's a terrible thing to experience. And I'm really sorry. So my objective is for him to not feel afraid anymore. And my mission is not going to be to imply that he's stupid or weak for believing something that isn't real. It's just going to be showing up effectively for him in an emotionally intelligent way. And it is this nuanced idea of being present with somebody and trying to understand what's going on in their lives instead of trying to convince them that they're stupid or wrong for thinking or feeling the things that they do. And you know, what I would literally do in that situation is like turn on the light, we'd look under the bed together, we'd make sure there's no monster there. And then most importantly, I'm not leaving the room. I'm going to stay for like a little bit until he knows he's safe, he calms down and he's ready to go back to sleep. Because the most important idea I want to leave that kid with, leave this human with that I love, whoever it is, is when something's wrong, you can always call me, you can always call your mom, you can always call whoever, you should be able to. And we're going to show up for you. And we might not be able to fix what's wrong. We might not be able to fix what's broken. But you never have to feel like you're the only one, like carrying this like ugly thing that you're feeling, that you're the only one facing whatever battle you're currently facing. So in life, I'm not going to be able to solve my son's problem. I'm not going to be able to solve my romantic partner's problems. But can I just be present and understand what's going on with them so that they don't have to feel alone in it? Because so much of pain and invalidation and relationships are based on the idea that I'm so invisible, so uncared for, so misunderstood by the other person. And I don't know, it can be like both people in a relationship, but I just think in my world, I was the person that was really just like insisting there's no monster in the bed. So just get over yourself. You have no reason to cry. Like metaphorically to my adult wife who was saying something I didn't agree with. I didn't agree that the bad thing was as bad as she said, like intellectually or emotionally, I thought she might be overreacting to something. I was a habitual invalidator and I think leading with validation. Whether we technically agree with somebody or not is a foundational habit on which to build trust in a relationship. I shouldn't say build, maintain trust in a relationship because we're often gifted trust from Jump Street with like a new relationship partner and we just slowly like chip away at it. I think it's such a good point and that's such a great metaphor for what's happening. I know that for me, when I'm upset by something, the moment that somebody invalidates it, it's almost like I can feel my ego amplify it more and more and more. Like, no, it is a big deal and I'll show you how big of a deal it is. That's like my, how my lower self meets that invalidation. But I also notice that there's a lot of times where my husband just decides to show up as a saint and he's like, okay. And I'm, it's on top of my mind because this is my first time since I just had a baby 13 months ago. And this is my first time since before I was pregnant of like PMSing. And I honestly forgot the level of emotions that were involved. And so I have been very unfair the last three days. Like people should cut me off from social media, from emails. I don't know anything. I should be locked alone in a room, but, uh, I, Definitely was unfair to him, but I did tell him what was going on with my hormones. And so there were things that he was just like agreeing to or just being like, okay, I'm sorry. But even when I'm not highly emotional, and it's just a normal thing, you know, triggers can get you more emotional than usual. The moment that he's like, okay, well, what should we do about this? Like, even if I can see in his mind, he's like wording it in a way where he doesn't have to agree, but he's like meeting me where I am. It's like I automatically am able to see things from a broader perspective because I'm not so tunnel vision on this one thing that I need him to see to like feel okay in this moment. So then I'm able to actually be like, you know what, you're right. And an example of this is, you know, having a one-year-old and we both have businesses, we both have hobbies. It's a lot of responsibilities. And there's a lot of times where 
I'm like, I haven't even been able to sit down today. What are you doing? And like in my head, all of a sudden, I'm like, you're not doing anything. But the moment that I am able to kind of take a step back from whatever tunnel vision I have right then, I'm like, he's actually not sat down today either. So (laughs) he's doing just as much. I just, for some reason, I'm fixated on the dishes, but not the fact that he made me dinner or (laughs) whatever it is. And so it allows me each other, and we're both pretty good at this now, where if we just like you say, validate that person's feelings, we realize that we can maybe show up better as well. I rolled my eyes at the notion of being somebody who like invalidated feelings. I thought that was such a ridiculous thing to care about. I thought people who allowed their emotions to guide their life were foolishly allowing something fickle and ever-changing to like control them, air quotes. And I mean, the thing that I've really come to understand is feelings are sort of everything. Like the most basic mammal experience is pursuit of feel good things and retreat from feel bad things. It is the absolutely the thing that guides the vast majority of our decision making. And I mean, even in my former life as like a marketer, you try to trigger emotional responses in order to sell things for crying out loud, which sounds like almost gross and deceptive, but I don't think it has to be. But that's truly what research shows people make their even their like buying decisions on, which is why we get like amazing Coke commercials, because that works, you know, smiling at the family getting together, you know, as we see before like the movie starts at the theater, and we're like, now I'm gonna go buy some Coke. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that you said earlier is that a lot of times this one fight that may be unresolved will keep coming up over and over again. In that case, why is it that those fights tend to continuously arise? I get that they're unresolved, but then in that case, is it the problem of the person who still maybe didn't invalidate those feelings? Or is it the problem of the other party who may keep bringing up old news to prove their point? Like, How do you even come to a common ground when that keeps happening? I don't think the same fight would exist in a relationship in which the two habits that I really try to talk about in my coaching work are, are present, validation being the first one. I don't think the same fight, I don't think there'd, there'd be a couple that was amazing at validating one another's emotional experiences, truly in like a loving, respectful way, that would have this quote unquote same fight over and over again. But the factor that could theoretically allow for that to happen would be this other habit that I work on my coaching relationship. And this is not validation, but the idea of consideration. And consideration, as I talk about it in coaching, is the idea of I think of intentionally, mindfully, think of my partner when I make decisions and I calculate for how what I do or don't do, what I say or don't say, will impact them about everything, large and small, about schedules, about what to cook for dinner, about where to go on vacation, about just about everything. And it shows up most common, these like same fight things in the average relationship. It's these little itty bitty things, dishes by the sink, laundry on the floor, toilet seats being in certain positions, you know, like toothpaste spittle on a bathroom mirror or in a sink basin. These are like the little things that people have different emotional experiences about and then end up having quote unquote the same fight over because they can't have a successful conversation about it because they're not validating one another in any meaningful way. But to me, if we practice the two habits, if we are mindfully considerate, she does an amazing job of keeping this mirror clean. I am not going to let my like toothbrush, like spittle drops crustify on the bathroom mirror only for her to walk in and see those. It, it might be something that would have been invisible like in my college years. But once it came time to live with her, and if I was being my best self, if I was practicing the things that I'm talking about now, I would never do that. I would notice these little dots because I want to protect her from walking in that room and having a moment, finding evidence that I don't care about what happens to her, that I don't care how what I do or don't do affects her. And But what actually happened is I just get like that shit everywhere. She would walk in the bathroom and then maybe she'd say something about it. And then I'd give her crap for being so petty that she cared about like the bathroom mirror. It's like either wipe it off or like ask me to do it and I'll go do it. But don't be like the kind of person that gives me crap about it is what I would have done, which is awful. I, I wish I just would have been, I wish I just would have like respected the fact that she worked so hard to keep the house 
in like a certain state that was really nice. And that I carelessly, you know, did stuff to like sabotage that. It is disrespectful. But like 25 year old me didn't know how to have that conversation the way that 43 year old me does. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I carelessly, you know, did stuff to like sabotage that. It is disrespectful. But like 25-year-old me didn't know how to have that conversation the way that 43-year-old me does. Yeah, that makes sense. And when those things come up, as small as they might be, it's hard to almost not assume that the person is doing it on purpose in some way. It's like, okay, we've lived here two years. You can't see that I stack the rectangle Tupperware on the right and the square Tupperware on the left. Yeah. Too specific. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. No, but what's so neat about that to me is it's, it doesn't happen when people are mindfully practicing consideration. There'd be no chance that you could come to the conclusion that anybody's doing something intentionally because you would have already had so many moments of I'm considered And I can tell because of what he does or doesn't do. And when he does something that sucks, I have every confidence I can bring it to him and he's going to hear it and he's going to say, okay, like, I get that. I'm sorry. Like, and if he doesn't understand, he's going to try to understand why. And that was my big hang up was thinking I was somehow above reproach. If I didn't understand, I don't know why I thought I was so brilliant. If I don't understand why something hurts her or upsets her, instead of acting like she's the asshole, What if I went to work on solving the mystery of why this thing that seems so inconsequential to me seems to be such a big deal to her? Like, I just wish I'd done that work. That's also under this umbrella of consideration. And as these little incidents and these little conversations pop up where I learn how someone else is experiencing me, is experiencing life, and I'm taking little notes. Situation X makes her feel this way. You know, situation Z makes her feel this way. We've talked about it. I get it. I I don't feel the same way as she does when these things happen, but I understand that when they happen, she experiences embarrassment, anger, sadness, fear, whatever, whatever the emotional experience she has when these moments happen. And if I can just love and respect her enough to see next time situation X or situation Z pops up, I'm like, this is the kind of thing that, you know, causes her to feel this certain way. When you become the kind of person that can notice that, in real time as life's happening, then you're trustworthy. You're someone who meets your partner's needs in real time as life's occurring around us instead of being blissfully ignorant of it and then like inadvertently causing so much trust erosion and sometimes pain in those relationships. So I I just think these two habits, perpetually validating, which allows someone to feel safe coming to you and saying, hey, a thing's wrong. And then they trust you to like understand it rather than belittle them. And then the second half is, I'm going to mindfully wake up every day and and be considerate. Factor in how she or he experiences, you know, what I do and don't do. And I'm going to take that role seriously because I want them to know. I would never behave carelessly or intentionally in a way I understood to hurt them. I would always choose to accept responsibility for protecting them from from feeling bad, from feeling disrespected. I don't know why... (laughs) 
don't know why the younger version of me refused to do that. Why so many people in relationships choose to make things about them. I just, it's hard to be a person. Because our egos are fueled with beer and vodka. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm curious, uh, how do we, how do you coach people to start identifying some of the more destructive response patterns that they have? Because one of the things that you say that I think is super important to note, uh, and it's just, uh, it's hard to fix things if you don't have this mentality, but you, you say that it's not a broken character defect that needs to be fixed. It's a habit that needs to be mod- modified. And I think that's that goes back to any change we want to make. If you think you're yeah. broken, then as much as you try, there's going to be this subconscious part of you that self-sabotages because you don't think that you can. But when we realize that most of these things are just patterns of responses, then we have the ability to change them and move forward, even if it takes a while. So how do we first identify some of those patterns that need to be changed? I want to follow up what you just said by saying another important part of that is when you, if you feel that you're never doing, if you feel, if it's a character defect, well, then, then you're bad and you're doing bad things. That's defective. And I you got all kinds of self-esteem issues. Or if you f- f- perceive yourself to be fine, but your partner perceives you to have a character defect or to be intentionally doing bad things, then you're prone to defensive responses. And defensive responses do not yield successful conversations. So I want to start there. But within this validation habit, I talk about the three distinct ways I believe we habitually invalidate people when we disagree with them. And we disagree with people all the time. And right, this is like is really apparent in like socio, like political issues, like in the world today, on social media and in person, and it has been going on pretty intensely for like the last like fifteen years, at least more than I remember it prior to that. And I don't know, we can do better. So the three distinct ways we invalidate people when we disagree with them, and the way that I like to talk about it is just telling the story of what it looked like in my marriage. My wife would come to me and she'd say, "Hey, Matt, this thing happened, then it hurt." I'm I'm telling you about it. Something's wrong, and now I'm trying to tell you about it. And so the first way I would habitually invalidate her if I disagreed with her would be to disagree with her intellectually. I would disagree that the incident she said occurred happened as she said it did. I just, I would have perceived the moment differently. And so I'd try to correct her framing. I'd try to correct her interpretation of what had occurred. Your brain's wrong. Therefore, your feelings are wrong because it's based on something that isn't real, like the monster under the bed thing. The monster's not there. You shouldn't be afraid. That thing didn't happen as you believe it did. Therefore, you shouldn't feel this way about it. Invalidated. I was trying to correct what my wife believed or thought. Version two, my wife comes in the room and says, hey, Matt, a bad thing happened. I feel bad about it. This is me telling you about it. This time, I would intellectually completely agree that the thing happened exactly as she said it did. But now I'm confused about why she feels the way she does about it. Now her feelings are wrong. And I'm trying to correct those. Hey, Yeah, that's what happened, but why are you making such a big deal out of it? A more healthy or fair or correct way to feel is boom. And then I like try to get her, try to sell her on the idea of feeling about it the way that I do. Version one and version two. I disagreed with what she thought and believed, disagreed with what she felt. Her her brain's wrong or her feelings are wrong in versions one and two. Version three is just defensiveness. She'd come in and say, Matt, you did this. It hurt. You know, on some level, I'm not saying she hurt every time. Sometimes she was just like annoyed. It's just a negative emotional experience, but I like the word hurt because I think it's easier to empathize with the concept of pain than it is with someone disagreeing with you in a frustrated way. Um, but, But something was negative for her. She told me about it, and my response is to explain or justify or defend why I did what I did. You know, hey, like, everything's fine. Stop, like, yelling at me or making me out to be the bad guy. If you understand why I did what I did, You'll like get it and then you won't be mad at me anymore. I won't be in trouble with you. I think those are the three ways we respond when we disagree or we have like conflicting emotional experiences with an event that occurs. And I think this crops up multiple times a day in people's lives. Somebody says something, we don't agree with it, and we say so. It's a very honest, natural response. And what I want people to become mindful of is that the math result of that conversation, not dissimilarly from the monster under the bed situation, equals invalidation. It equals mistrust. And anyway, I think when you become mindful of these three default response patterns, they become visible in your own life. When, you, when somebody says something to you, your partner, 
and you say something back and the same fight starts, that should be the alarm that something destructive, something dysfunctional has occurred. And I just think people can practice their way out of that. And it's verbally or literally the equivalent of not staying hyper-focused on whether or not there's a monster under the bed. It's the metaphorical equivalent of sitting on the bed and, and hugging you know, the person you care about that's afraid. It can look so different depending on what the situation is and what the emotional experience is. But can we care that the people we love are currently dealing with something that sucks for them? And can we participate mindfully in trying to help them make that shit thing go away? Rather than try to sell them on how much better the way we think and feel is compared to them. Because at the end of the day, I made everything about me when my wife hurt. If it didn't pass my sniff test of, I believe that same thing, or I feel that same thing, or I shouldn't have done what she claims I shouldn't have done. If I don't agree with those three ideas, I always chose my beliefs and my feelings over hers. And you, you just can't live with somebody. You can't trust somebody that does that to you. And I didn't know how to think about it like that back when I was married, but I see it so clearly now. And so many people do that to their partners. It's like all people agree all the time. We love each other. We care. People say things. It's like we agree. And then boom, validation happens. But every instance of disagreement, when we're not careful, can lead to habitually invalidating responses. That will erode trust. That will erode safety. Relationship will go away. Or at least be a really shitty thing that you don't want to be a part of anymore. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. It's hard to be in a relationship and not to have experienced that regardless of which end of that argument you're on. I know I've been both partners in in that story, honestly. But we've talked about some of the ways to overcome this, choosing safety and trust over being right. What are some other habits or key relationship skills that we should practice to have a healthier relationship? Man, I think those two go a long way. But consideration, which we talked about a little bit, to me encompasses so many skills. Consideration is the first skill would be I remember to remember. I remember to calculate for my partner all of the time. I guess I should just maybe start at the beginning with consideration. Forgive me for being so ADHD and out of order. If I'm talking to a client and we get to habit two consideration, this is the setup. The average, and, and, and forgive me, I, I'm being a little gendery, but I trust people. I trust people to apply it to their own personal lives regardless. Typical situation is I'm working with a guy and he's married to a woman and they often have children. And so what the average wife and mother in this situation experiences is I am a variable. Like in, in the algebraic equation I use to make decisions all the time. It's me, it's my husband, it's my one or two or three kids. And I factor in all two, three, four, five of us all the time, every day, constantly as a default state. I am considering how what I do or don't do will impact them. And in that, it's like grocery shopping and planning vacations and when to schedule appointments and all sorts of things that wives and mothers frequently sort of like do in their relationships. And she's often with somebody, and again, I, forgive me for making it gender because it's not always this way. Sometimes it's totally reversed. I'm married to somebody who they're the only variable in the equation they use to make decisions. I'm just not included in it. So he loves me. He's a great dad. I, I know he's not trying to hurt me. He, he doesn't doing this on purpose to make my life miserable. It's just clear he frequently does things absentmindedly, thoughtlessly that don't include me. And so, but when you do that, that's actually the really nice version. Some people fear that over the years, it really is intentional because like how much, you know, when the same thing's happening, you're three, four, five, six, seven, you're like, I have enough data now. Like you have to be doing this on purpose anymore or at minimum negligently. But when I think about like that wife and that mother, she has two options to consider. One, he's intentionally doing things that hurt me. He remembers me, he thinks about me, And he just doesn't give a shit that the math result of what he does, what he says, hurts me as much as it does. That's the worst possible thing that could be true. And the best possible thing that can be true is that I'm married to somebody who doesn't think about me at all. The best case scenario is I'm married to somebody where I register so small on his or her daily mental to-do list, ranking list, that I'm forgotten in a great majority of the decisions he or she's making. As they walk around in the world, at work, at home, doing whatever. And it's that idea 
that feels so like abandoning and unsafe for so many people in relationships. It's like, I'm so small. I'm so invisible, unseen, uncared for, disrespected, unloved. He doesn't even remember me. That same guy will like know and forgive me. I'm sorry. Again, I'm doing the gender thing again, but like, I just don't know how to not apply it to myself and on many of the guys that I work with. That same guy might know like the third string running back for the Detroit Lions, even though he never watches a Detroit Lions football game because he wants to win his fantasy football league. He, he is like highly skilled at paying attention to detail. And she has all the evidence in the world that he is, but he's opted out for one reason or another at all of these things that, that matter so much to her or that directly impact her. But then every time she brings that conversation up, you know, he implies she's silly, overreacting, making, making a big deal out of something that isn't true because, of course, I love you. You can tell because I married you, you know, because I promised you the rest of my life. And it's just not how the math of relationships work. We have to stop measuring our intentions and we have to start measuring what the math result is of what we do or don't do on the people that we love. We can have the best intentions in the world and the result afterward is they feel shitty about something that happened. And we get to decide, I guess, for ourselves, the degree to which we want to accept responsibility for that. And I don't begrudge people who want to opt out of that process. I just caution that your relationship will suffer and or go away if that's true. I encourage people who want to be married. I'm not a marriage advocate, but I don't want married people to suffer if they want to be married. And to me, this is like the great miscalculation in relationships. It's not about what you tried to do. It's not necessarily about what you think or feel they should experience after you do or say whatever you do or say. They're going to have a very real experience. And it might be might totally conflict with what you think is true or accurate or fair. But can we learn to understand and respect and mindfully consider that? And the amount of pain that goes away when we habitually consider other people when we make decisions, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I feel all of that. I've been on both sides again. Sure. Actually, in the sure. beginning of my relationship, I had just been an only child, living on my own for so long, single, that I was used to doing things for myself. I remember actually being at lunch with one of my best friends one time, and this stung a little bit. I got like, it was one of those places where you go up to the counter and order and then go sit down and like they give you a water cup and you fill them up or whatever. So we sat down, we like each had a glass of wine and then I went and filled up my water cup and came back and she goes, you want to know how I can tell you're an only child? You filled up your water cup and didn't even think to take mine. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, first of all, <laughs> I was like, way to just call me out there. But it started to make me think of the things that maybe I did in my relationships just unintentionally, just as a habit. And so the good news was I was able to just bring more awareness into it and show up differently. And yeah, sometimes I'd forget, but then I'd come back down with the water, for example, and be like, oh, I should have gotten yours too and get up and do it. But it is uh, like a new habit, a new way of being. And when you choose to be in a relationship, especially a marriage or a domestic partnership, you're on a team. And I had never even played team sports. I did cross country. And so it was this whole new way of like, oh, we're both working towards the same goal. It's not every man for ourselves. And so I know that that's a huge one. But another one is you make such a good point in your book about moving the dots closer and how every day, every conversation, every moment is an opportunity to move closer to one another or further apart. How do you apply that? Like just in the day-to-day normal things, what are some examples of how we can use that to closen our relationship? I really appreciate that. Yeah. I often talk about, you know, imagine a horizontal line. Imagine you're a dot on like the left or the right side and your partner is a dot on on the other, and there's some distance between you. And that measures whatever deficit there is in like connection, intimacy, trust between the two of you. And I ask clients who are often, their marriage is in some state of turmoil to imagine that you know, there's, there's some distance apart. And I, I really think it's, it's very practical to take out a piece of paper and like draw that, draw that horizontal line and draw little like line graph marks, little units of measurement between and plot those dots. And then just can you, as a matter of habit, prioritize moving those dots closer, behaving in a manner where the math result is the dots move closer together afterward. And what I like about that is I think it governs our habits then. It, it like usurps my tendency. If, if my highest calling today is to move the dots closer with my partner, well, then I'm not going to thoughtlessly invalidate them when they bring something to me. I'm not going to thoughtlessly be inconsiderate 
I mean, I might, I might actually, but the beautiful part is you can be inconsiderate. And so long as when you get feedback about it, like you did about that fill up the water cup incident, as long as that's accepted as like, this like loving, I want to understand like that that's how you experienced it sort of way. I thought that was a great story, by the way, such a perfect example of how two different people can like see the world so differently. I, I too was raised an only child. And so identify with so much of that, but it, I'm, I'm always hyper-focused on validation and consideration, but they're hard to like remember to do because of our habits, because these things happen in our blind spots. It's not that doing them is extraordinarily challenging. It's just so hard in the busyness of the white noise of daily life to mindfully be like vigilant about doing them as life's happening. If as like a goal every day, the, the, our, our top priority is those dots moving closer. It's the difference between walking into that bedroom with the kid that's crying and doing the thing where you're like, hey, everything's fine. Go back to sleep. I don't have time for this versus I want those dots to move closer together. I know the dots move further apart if I operate on my default setting and tell him there's no monster. So shut up. Everything's fine. I'm going to behave in a manner that mathematically results in safety and trust being restored and him feeling loved, heard, understood, cared about. And if we do that, if we envision and let that be like a guiding principle for us, this idea of always trying to move closer to one another, I just, I really believe in, in this idea that like psychologically speaking, we, we won't forget to practice these other habits. But again, you have to be first to be aware. You know, the, the guys that come and talk to me, the first time we talk, they, most of them have never ever in their lives thought about mechanically what it looks like to validate somebody or mechanically what it might look like to be this sort of more considerate human being. Then we get to talking about the things that you and I have just been talking about. And I think it starts to become visible, but it requires practice and it requires this sort of commitment to a process. And I tell everybody, it's really hard at the beginning because you have to remember to remember. But the beautiful thing about habits is once you've done it enough times, neuroplasticity sets in. And then you don't really have to like remember to remember anymore. It becomes your new default. When we habit these things into our new default, dots move closer all the time. And I think that's a really, really neat idea. I appreciate you asking me about it. Well, I think that so many listeners are probably thinking about sending their partners straight to you after this <laughs> after this interview. But thank you so much for all the wisdom that you brought to this area. I think that points that you emphasize are I mean, in my experience, the biggest things that I've experienced in relationship, well, it's like the like you say the most damaging little things. I've had big things happen, but those were obvious. It's like okay, clearly you're ruining my life. You got to go. But it's the other things where you're just like your soul is slowly eroding over time and you don't even know why and then you're like trying to explain it to somebody and you're like but the Tupperware or whatever it is and yeah. you can't even put your your finger on it and so then you feel crazy and then you just know you're unhappy and crazy and so there's you're so like much gaslight to, yourself yeah, yeah <laughs> there's so much to work with here so for listeners that are resonating where's the best place to find you and your book online um, my home on the internet is Matthew Frey uh, that's two T's MatthewFrey.com and um, the book is This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. It came out in North America on March 22nd. I'm really excited about it. I really hope that it can help people that, that have these same blind spots that I had in my marriage. I just really hope it can make the invisible visible for them because we don't have a chance. I, I hope none of this sounded judgy. I don't, think it, I don't think I did an effective job of communicating just how set up to fail, I think so many people are. We don't know what we don't know. We enter relationships with the best of intentions and then we accidentally hurt one another, confused about why the other person's so hurt by what we perceive to be innocent, benign behaviors. And when we make the invisible visible and we accept responsibility for, again, this idea of the math result of what I do can be experienced very horribly by someone else and I'm gonna protect them from it because I love them, it just changes the world within your universe, within your relationship. And the beautiful thing is it extends to our children and our best friends and our families of origin and our working relationships. Once we get like skilled at these habits, it just improves our relationships across the board. And I don't believe anything correlates more closely with quality of life than how good our relationships are. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x78. 
Your challenge for this week is to bring a little mindfulness into your relationship with one specific exercise. Whenever you're engaging with your partner, whether a conflict arises or you're just greeting them when they come home for the day, ask yourself, in this moment, are we moving closer together or farther apart? I think we like to keep this mindset that if we just don't do anything, then we stay in the same spot. But that's not always true. If you're not doing anything, you might be moving farther apart. If you let the conflict get the best of you, or you focus on the separation between the two of you, or the idea that you're right in this scenario and the other person needs to see that, you're moving farther apart. This doesn't mean that you always need to see eye to eye. But the goal should be to try to understand the other person's perspective, even if in the end you disagree with it. I like to remind myself that I'm not in a relationship to make my partner just like me, or to make my partner think just like I do, or see a situation just like I do. Sometimes that's what makes our relationship beautiful, because he's able to see a spectrum of the rainbow that I don't. So ask yourself, in this moment, Can I find a way to bring us closer together? Can I seek understanding rather than victory? Because maybe that understanding of the other person or making them feel heard or seen or just being emotionally with them, maybe that is victory. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a comment right on the show notes page at mindlove.com slash x78. If you found this episode helpful, tap the share button and share it with somebody else who could also find it helpful. Maybe you share it directly with their partner so you're on the same page of what you're going to work on this week. If you'd like to support Mind Love, there's so many ways to do that. The best way is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get ad-free episodes, also the entire backlog of exclusive episodes and other bonuses like meditations. You can also support one of my amazing sponsors. I love them all. I vet them all. I use them all. And finally, you can share the show or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week.